Recorded in the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to walk in the age of fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you and seek you to uh, be with us. Help uh, Seth and Wendy and Mags as they uh, keep the show going out there technically. And uh, bless our audience, small or large, whoever hears these words in the archives or live, that uh, will be of benefit. And uh, we just pray for these things for seekers. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been on a kind of a uh, presentation of new biblical perspectives. And uh, our discussion tonight takes us to Romans chapter 1. Why? Why do I want to cover Romans chapter 1? Well, for many evangelicals, Romans chapter 1 presents for them some of the best verses, uh, verses to beat homosexuals over the head with. Romans chapter 1. Know what it says to you? Okay. So let's see what Paul really says and decide for ourselves. And in order to really grasp the meaning and therefore the context of what Paul says, you got to have allow for a brief summary. At verse 16, jumping all the way ahead to 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that gives us a, a, a place to start. Having introduced us to his audience, Jew and Greek, he then plainly establishes that the gospel is accessed by faith. Okay? And he explains later that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven on all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. This is included in the chapter. All right? So I want to strongly suggest right off the bat that Paul is describing the period before 70 AD. He's talking about the period before Christ and then post-Christ all the way up to 70 AD where the wrath of God will be revealed upon all the unrighteous and ungodliness of men. So that's one contextual point. Who the audience was that Paul is speaking of. At verse 19, Paul explains that all people, all, have had a witness given to them by God in their lives. And then he adds at verse 21, the famous line, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So I maintain that Paul plainly establishes the fact that all human beings, all human beings, and we're talking about from Adam all the way up to Christ, and then from Christ to 70 AD, all human beings, uh, and perhaps even today, uh, have the capacity to reason, they can think, they can observe, and that God has given them witnesses of his existence in their lives, witnesses through the cosmos, witnesses through conscience, witnesses through the law written on their hearts, through all sorts of stuff, and therefore no human being is without an excuse. Every human being is unexcusable, in other words. And then describing such in more detail, he now says, because that when they, all the people, the human race, knew God, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. 
neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man to birds and the four-footed beasts and the creeping things. Okay, so what he's describing here is people all through those ages from Adam to Jesus and all the way to 70 AD who had a conscience, had vision of God, had reasonable uh, ways to understand that he exists, to deny that. And when they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. They weren't thankful. They became vain. Their foolish heart was darkened. They became really, they became big fools. And then they changed the incorruptible God, his eternal nature, his power, his glory into the image. And Paul says of corruptible men, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. He's talking about idolatry. They left the, the idea of the eternal God and they changed it into idolatrous figures. Notice uh, that he says they changed God into corruptible man. Isn't that funny that that's one of his descriptions that the idolaters did? They took the living God and they changed him into that of corruptible men. So you got all that. It's at this point now, having said all that, that Paul enters into describing the results of this downward spiral, or what the Greeks called catabasis, of all human beings that were capable of thought and thinking and reason. Let me repeat this. It's at this point that Paul enters now describing the results of those people who left God, turned to idolatry, started worshiping idols. Now he starts to describe specifically where they arrive, and he gives us the next verses, the result of those whose minds and hearts we have just described, the result, okay? And he says, wherefore, verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanliness through their lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So at verse 24, Paul says, as a result of them turning from God and going to idols, God gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their own hearts. I'm going to let them go after what they ever want of their own to dishonor their bodies between themselves. This isn't yet distinctly talking about homosexuality. He's leading to that. But, and he will use homosexuality as one of the things that people do when they have turned to idolatry, but it is not the focal point of the chapter, okay? So this just taps into the idea that there were, that some people, when they turned from God and turned to idols, became homosexual, that they turned to homosexuality. Verse 26, however, he seems to get even more specific and says, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. Even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So he first speaks of what the women idolaters who turned from God in their own vain imaginations did. And it appears he's talking about lesbianism here. It appears he's talking about it um, because he 
says they did change the natural use and the Greek really means they changed the physical makeup, the physical use of their bodies. That's what they did, the women, okay? Now, uh, uh, because Paul is next going to absolutely talk about homosexuality, many people think that he starts by talking about lesbianism. However, uh, Paul could have re referred to a number of ways that women's natural physical bodies are abused or used in ways they weren't meant for. Anal sex, uh, bestiality, sleeping with cows. Uh, our audience is so easily entertained. Uh, multiple men at one time in every orifice and the like. That, that's what he could be saying. They, they took the natural use of their body, which was intercourse with a man and to bear children. That's the natural use of a woman's body. And they just went and they used their bodies for a thousand different ways. So it doesn't necessarily deliberately speak to lesbianism. Uh, but because Paul begins the next verse with likewise, and in the next verse he's talking about homosexuality males, it is believed that he's talking about lesbianism. I'll give it that. That's fine. So let's go to the big verse people go to speaking about homosexuality using Romans 1. And Paul now says, Likewise, also the men. So he's talked about women. Leaving the natural use of the woman, which we understand what that means, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meat. That's a big mouthful of words. So listen to the first issue of the passage. Paul is speaking of homosexuality without question here. There's no doubt about it. And I say this uh, as a defense against the apologists who say homosexuality is not being talked about here. That's what, the, that's what the secular apologist will say. He's not talking about homosexuality. He's talking about something different. They're wrong. That, that doesn't make uh, the use of this chapter uh, right but for Christians, but their interpretation to defend against it and saying he's not talking about homosexuality is absolutely incorrect. He is, he's talking about homosexuality that is the result of them turning from God, turning to idols, and God giving them over to the own lust of their heart. That's the context, all right? The, here's the point. The argument that people say use to say that he's not talking about homosexuality comes down to the word man. Men uh, with men working that which is unseemly. The reason is, in Scripture, there are a couple words for men or man. One is arhain, arhain, uh, and that means males. And, uh, and that is the word that is used here. Males with males. And so the argument is, um, he's not saying men, adults, with men, adults. He's saying a male with a male. And he's really condemning pedophilia. That's the argument that, that people who say he's not talking about homosexuality here use. Because the word arhrein is is used here instead of the typical word for men, which is anthropos, 
Okay, and that's used over 500 times in Scripture, where, where uh, our reign is only used seven times. And here we have two of those times. So it's a unique use of the word uh, our reign, but Paul is, uh, uh, and so people say, he's not talking about uh, men, grown men with grown men. He's talking about a male with another male, and that we believe is talking about a male uh, practicing pedophilia. All right? So um, my response to this is that whenever a male child is referred to specifically in Scripture, that the Greek will always describe that child as a man-child. Uh, anthropos huios, or, or arhrein huios. That, that the writers will always include the idea of a child in the description, and not just male or man. And so this is not the case here with Paul. So he's plainly describing an adult male with an adult male, man to man, arhrein to arhrein, because huios for child or young boy is not included. And it's not a means, he doesn't use arhrein as a means to distinguish between the type or age of males. He uses arhrein to describe the difference between males and females between the previous verse and females. So he's, that's why he uses our reign there and, uh, instead of anthropos. So add in the fact that the full context of the verse describes willing male adults, uh, burning in lust for each other. In a pedophilia-type uh, relationship, I don't think the young child is burning in his lust toward an adult male uh, malfactor. I think that the adult child is preying upon the, 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 the young child. So they're not burning in lust toward each other. And, um, and that doesn't describe predatory pedophilia. Finally, we note Paul's language is more emphatic as he says that the males leave the natural use of the woman. A child doesn't leave a natural use of a woman. A child doesn't have, hasn't established the natural use of a woman yet. And uh, burned in their lust, their lust, the men and men, uh, so it's not talking about a child, toward an, one another, so back and forth lust they're talking about between two adult males. And like I said, in pedophilia exchanges, we don't have that back and forth thing going on, at least I don't think very much. Men working with men in a pedophilia relationship, it's one man working toward a child, that's not there. The, uh, in the deeds being done. So it's clearly pointing out and describing two males who are gay who are getting it on. And they're adult males. That's what Paul is describing there. So that argument that it's talking about pedophilia should be tossed right out the window. I have a, a friend who brought that to my attention. He argued it with me. And I, I just I had to do this research to be able to refute him. He said, you're nuts. So let's begin with the subject being clear. There's no workarounds about what the meaning was there with Romans 1. He's describing homosexuality, plain and simple. But let's be fair and let's be contextual. This passage clearly has Paul describing the state that some male adults, listen, some male adults who first knew God, then became unthankful, then became vain, then changed God into an image of idolatry, 
and they refused to see him for who he was, what is, or give thankful to him. And then God let them go or turn them over to fulfill their lust of their own heart. And in some people, that lust amounted to homosexual relationships. That's the contextual way to read those passages, right? That's the context. So if you want to show in scripture that God does not like homosexuality, it's not Romans 1 to do it. Because Romans 1 is describing a particular type of person who's gone through all of that stuff and in the end turns to another of their own gender and exercises their lust. All right. If you want to use a passage that supports uh, that God is not a favor of homosexuality, go to Leviticus 18.22. It says, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It's an abomination. That's the passage you use. It's right there. Okay. Or Leviticus 20.13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman. Right. So, you know, when you lie with a woman, you stick your unit in her. So, you know, when you lie with a man, you stick your unit in him. As a man lies with a man, or with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. It's straight up. It's straight up. So all these ancillary arguments of, of trying to say the Bible doesn't speak uh, against homosexuality is ridiculous. But, again, in the context of these passages in Romans, Paul uses homosexuality as the result of people first turning from God, then turning to idolatry, then arriving at homosexuality, listen carefully, as one of the outcomes, as one of the outcomes. It happens to be the first outcome that he mentions, right? But it's only one of the outcomes that he will mention, right? So while the passage is speaking of homosexuality, it is a form of homosexuality that is prefaced by ingratitude, pride, denying the power and glory of God, turning to idolatry and ending at this sin. And this is one of the sins Paul will mention. So that's the first point to make about Romans 1 and the attack and using it as an attack on homosexuality. The words are written in the context of a person first doing all that Paul describes. So the only way you could use Romans 1 against a homosexual is to say to that homosexual and know this about them. You once knew God. You turned from him. You turned him into an idol. You became unthankful. You then uh, worshiped these idols. God gave you over to your lust and you started engaging in homosexual practices. You could use Romans 1 in the case of such a person, all right? It does not include a homosexual or lesbian who retains God in their mind and heart. It does not speak of someone who's involved in homosexuality who believes in God, who hasn't turned him into an idol, who is thankful, not at all. So when Christians use Romans 1 to, to talk about homosexuality, it is so uncontextual and improper to do, right? So the second point to realize about these passages, and to be fair, is that Paul does not stop here by just indicting people who are practicing homosexual things as a result of their catabasis. Listen to what he now says. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, okay, verse 28, 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this is key to their understanding, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. They did not like to acknowledge or retain God in their hearts, so he turned them over. And this is a consequence. He lists the consequences of that choice to turn from God. This is the consequence of their choice. God gave them up to a reprobate mind. And that means a mind that's destitute of judgment and spiritual discernment. And now go with me to verse 29, to the end of the chapter. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not becoming. And now he goes on to describe in further detail far more than just homosexuality, the results of turning from God and turning to idolatry and being unthankful and God giving you up. Being filled, verse 29, with one, all unrighteousness. Two, fornication. Three, wickedness. Four, covetousness, maliciousness, full of murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers. Verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, treacherous, without family love, truth-breaking, and unmerciful. And he adds, though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. Paul does not I mean, does Paul not totally describe the heart and mind of those who have fully disengaged from God and a knowledge of him and turned to their own will? They certainly does. And homosexuality is just the first thing he mentions. This is totally ignored when people use Romans 1 to pick on homosexuals. It's totally ignored that Paul goes on to say they become boastful. They become inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, all these all these 22 things he adds to that. That's the context. You leave God, he turns you over, and you do things that uh, you want to do. That's, that's really what the chapter is talking about. So, if you know someone who's a homosexual, they haven't done that, then they, they don't fit in this category in which you can attack the homosexual community does not describe a homosexual who squarely faces God, who says, I'm a homosexual and I want you in my life. I'm not going to turn to idols. I know you don't like this about my flesh. All that stuff, okay? And those people are not one bit different than anybody else. You take a homosexual who loves God and hasn't turned to idolatry and is grateful and thankful, they're not any different to God than someone who likes banging multiple chicks or or uh, whatever thing we do in our flesh. It's all the flesh, right? So I'm trying to show the contextual use of the chapter. Using Romans 1 as an, as an indictment against people who are homosexual is a really bad uh, exegesis of Scripture, of the passage we've, we've described. And this brings me to the final observation of Romans 1 that is almost always ignored. And it's a good one, but you got to listen. All right. And that is the first three verses of chapter two. We just read to the end of chapter one. Okay. And we stop there. God hates fags. You know, all this stuff that we say. It's not in context when we say that. We're using Romans one improperly. 
but then just go and read verses 1, 2, and 3 of the next chapter. Whenever you use Romans 1 to prove anything or condemn anyone at all, consider what, they, what Paul says. Therefore, verse 1, you are inexcusable, uh, O man, whosoever you are that judges. We never add this to the study of Romans 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, you who judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judges do the same things of his 24 laundry list we just read, including homosexuality, including murder, including blasphemy, disobedience to parents. He says, therefore, you who judge, you do the same things and you're condemning yourself. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things, that doest the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So there's your context. Therefore, Paul says, in light of all I have just written, first word of chapter 2, in light of everything I just wrote in chapter 1, therefore, the design of chapter 2 and the next chapter, chapter 3, appears to be to show the Jews who were under the law they were no less guilty than the Gentiles who had no law and that they needed the benefit of the same salvation which was afforded the world by Christ. Paul appears to do this by showing that the Jews who had greater light than the pagan Gentiles did the same, and this is an important word, things, plural. They were guilty of the same things in their lives. Note the plurality of things in verse 2. It's not that the Jews were all guilty of homosexuality in the previous chapter, meaning that one thing that we want to think that's what he's talking about, but they were all guilty of some of the things that Paul mentions in chapter 1. Therefore, they have no right, and this is the point, to condemn anyone else, namely the Gentiles for doing the same. That's the principal point of what he says there. He didn't stop the Jews from accusing and condemning the Gentiles as being filthy and wicked, all the while excusing themselves by saying they possess the laws of God uh, and they were his chosen people. So understanding that, let's read that first verse after he gives the laundry list. And he says, therefore, you are unexcusable, O man, whoever thou art that judges. That means condemns, crino, and wherein you condemn another, you condemn yourself, for thou that judges does the same things. So let me read it from a more readable translation. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another, for in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same, there's that word, things, referring to the laundry list, 24 things we just read. This is a blanket condemnation on the hypocrisy of, of anybody condemning another person. So when people use Romans 1 to condemn homosexuals, they miss the context, they miss all the details of it, and then they're guilty of what Paul says they're guilty of in the first three verses of the next chapter. Condemning others for the things that they also are guilty of. It doesn't have to be homosexuality. You can be disobedient to parent and, and you're in the same group. So if you're condemning a homosexual, but you're disobedient to your parents, Paul is saying you are condemning yourself. 
Do you get that? Sin is sin. The laundry list that Paul describes in chapter 1 must be seen as a condemnation list of the whole shebang. And we know this, we find some support for this, because of the mixed up order in which Paul writes things. He says, you know, you, if you're, he says homosexual, and then he says if you're envious, and, and, and he puts murder between envy and debate. If you're envious, if you murder, if you debate, it's to show that you're, if you're condemning someone else and you're guilty of any of those things, you yourself are condemned. It can't be used as an indictment on homosexuals. If someone is guilty of being envious, they have no right to condemn someone who's guilty of murder, is what he says. Guilt is guilt before God, sin is sin, and to see yourself in any other way, you wind up being a hypocrite. That's what he teaches. Therefore, to the most important point of all this, unless you are without sin in your life, you have zero justification to cast a stone at another, homosexuals included. You don't have a leg to stand on. And uh, zero of anybody, of anybody for anything, if you have sin in your life. If you're guilty of the same things, any of them, shut your mouth in your condemnation of others. Just shut it. Humble yourselves before God. Be grateful for the grace He extends toward you and your ills. And sincerely pray that he will step in and help lift up people who are guilty of the the same, but never, ever condemning them. And so Paul writes to that audience, you are inexcusable, uh, O man, whosoever you are that judges. For For wherein thou judges another, you condemn yourself, for thou that judges does the same things. And he adds, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. We we leave it to God. We don't spend our time condemning anybody. We're sure, according to truth, God will judge righteously of those who commit such things. Let me wrap up this new perspective by reminding ourselves that Paul was writing to a body of believers who expected the return of Christ to the earth to take them and heap judgment upon those who rejected them. This is the context of the passages, and to read them now in the same light that we are in a completely different scenario is to misapply the message. Either God's wrath was poured out on them then, or it was not. If it was, then believers today might consider reassessing their understanding of souls who are found in sin, so to speak, uh, than the way you do. If he hasn't come back and God's wrath is still abiding, uh, waiting uh to ultimately be poured out upon this world, then read these passages as having a direct literal application to you and live your life accordingly in a non-condemnatory, non-judgmental pattern. All right. And with that, let's go to your comments from our archived show. Channel comments. I'm just starting at the top. I'm going to try to skip any comment that had to do with our cat shows which you should tune in and watch. We're letting them out to you subscribers every Friday night with uh, Steve and Ethan and myself. 
So caller wants to know where Joseph Smith got his visions. Are you with me on this, Seth? All right. Oh, my gosh. This is too long. I'm not going to read that one. Sorry, Byron of Calvary. I'm sure it's Calgary. I'm sure it's good, but we got to keep them to short ones. Uh, then the next comment, LDS caller tries to defend the Book of Mormon. It says, do you have anything on Mark Twain reading the Book of Mormon? For one reason is what he says. Uh, I know Mark Twain read the Book of Mormon. He called it chloroform in print. And he also said something to the effect that if you take out all that it came to passes, you'd have a pamphlet. Um, <laughs> Mark Twain, ever the witticist. Uh, nevertheless, I don't know anything more about his experience reading the Book of Mormon. Uh, Mark Twain was certainly uh, acerbic and had a keen mind. Uh, Joan Lantis on the comment show wrote, this may be the dumbest question, but what would a Christian life look like? Uh, it looks uh, like Christ's life looked. Uh, not necessarily in the specifics, but generally speaking. It's uh, loving, it's selfless, it's serving, it's teaching, it's, it's kind, it's feeding, it's reaching out to the lost, it's forgiving the sinners. It looks like Christ's life, I think is a simple way to put that. Uh, the Bible, in, the LDS interpret a few biblical passages to say it endorses pre-existence. Busy, bow, t creations, creationis, uh, cites Job. Uh, and he shows that Job 38, 4 through 7 has God saying to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And his point being, you weren't there. And that is a good refutation against the LDS use of passages that they use to support a pre-existence. And those of you who don't know, Mormons teach that we all came from a pre-existence where God and his heavenly wives, uh, they multiplied and created the spirit children that would come down to this earth. There was a war in heaven and uh, Satan took some of the spirit children with him and they became the demons. And the rest of us came down and we got bodies and that we will die and we'll go back to that presence with God. And um, that's an LDS teaching. All right, I'm going to skip all these. Is Jesus, Jesus coming back? No Shame was a show that we uh, listed. I don't know what it's about. Faith from Design Corps is accepting, is accepting mama's spoon of food when we only knew milk. But if we are fed too much, the food becomes spew. The top-level LDS must realize countless extra spoons of food will always be spew. Such strange people at the top of that. All right. I got to read them as they come. Um, on No Shame, the show, uh, the, the purveyor of some thing called Common Sense Christianity wrote, Sean, stop destroying my childhood, LOL. Just to let you know, Common Sense Christianity is Ethan Foster's uh, web uh, podcast, and uh, it's uh, full of information. If you like Ethan on the Cat Show, well, he has his own podcast, and you can get it by going to Common Sense Christianity. What he's referring to there, because I don't remember what the No Shame Show is, I don't know, but Ethan's here, and I'm just going to ask him. Oh, I was using Santa Claus as an example of not being able to go around the world in one night and go to every house and drop through chimneys. And uh, Ethan says I was destroying his childhood, LOL. 
No, I want to clarify that. Santa does go around to every house in the world. He does drop gifts down the chimney. He is fat and can't seemingly get there. And he eats cookies and he has reindeers. All of that's true, Ethan. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was responded to by Eli Sheets. And Ethan and Eli went off a different road, which I'm not going to read. On the No Shame show, John O'Reardon said, you're talking through your hole. That's what he wrote. You're talking through. Well, I would agree. This is a hole of sorts. It's a hole in my head. I, I do talk through it. I have no other hole I talk through. Uh, although sometimes after a good Mexican dinner, it sounds like I'm speaking. <laughs> uh, he says, you're talking through your hole. He never said anything wrong. You're listening to the media. Have a look at people who are there and see what they say. God bless everyone. Does anyone know what I was talking about? No, I didn't. Yeah. You're talking about good faith and bad faith. And uh, don't he says he never said anything wrong. Does he, do you know who he's referring to? He? My, it's not political, is it? Was I talking about President Trump? Oh, it was way long ago. Well, my hole does sometimes say things and we'll just leave it at that. Hey, Eli Sheet says, hey, Sean, I wanted to ask your stance about Calvinism. Now, granted, this was years ago, but you said you'd rather worship the Mormon God than a Calvinist one. So I have a couple of questions. Do you believe Calvinists are saved? Absolutely. A Calvinist can be as saved as a, as a Mormon, as a Baptist, as a Pentecostal, as a Methodist, as a whoever, uh, an aboriginist who's out in the jungle and he assents to what he knows. Yes. Calvinist, absolutely. Also, wouldn't an all-knowing God know the future? Uh, yeah, I would think an all-knowing God would know the future. Jesus predicted that Judas would betray him, that Peter would deny him three times. Just generally curious on your problems with Calvinism. Do you believe they have a few good points and your position might be wrong? Again, thanks for my answering the comments the other day. Well, here's the thing. My comment on Calvinism doesn't have anything to do with God and uh, being omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent, even though those words are cast around a lot pretty freely. My problem with Calvinism's God is that he's a God that knew all things, decided to create the world anyway, knowing all things, and after creating the human race, decided who to pick to believe on him, no one else has the ability to do it unless he picks them. And then the rest of them, he doesn't care a rat's ass about and throws them into an eternal punishment of hell, screaming literal fire. So he creates in effect the Calvinistic God, people who have no choice but to go to hell because he refuses to elect them. For of his own goodwill, the people he elects have, do nothing to merit it. This is the Calvinistic God, and I think he's heinous. The Mormon God, there's some ontological problems with him. Yeah, he, was, he has a father, has a father, has a father. You can't create anything out of and all that stuff that the Mormons teach. But in terms of being loving and kind and free will and choice and working, and I like the Mormon God far better. The Calvinistic God is absolutely uh, unknowable to me when I read the scripture. So uh, it doesn't take away from his omniscience. I just don't believe in him. 
no shame. AJ, the Oklahoma guru, says, as far as St. Nicholas and his existence, he was a historical figure. Oh, God. <laughs> Do we have to really go down this road? <laughs> Can I use Santa as an example, please? Oh, just because someone invented a bunch of myths does not erase his existence. Does he live today? Of course. He lives in the hearts of those who carry out the very reason of his memory. <coughs> I'm sorry. This kind of logic, Oklahoma guru, kills me. It just kills me. Chris Kringle, the historical figure, never climbed down a fucking chimney. And it's actually chimney, but I can't say that. So I say chimney. And he doesn't do anything like the myth. Yes, a historical figure. But I just, I get, I get what you're trying to say, but I just don't really like it. Santa Cruz hippie surfer said, faith in Joseph Smith or faith in Jesus. And he puts a penguin there. What's the meaning of penguin? Don't ask me, I don't know. The emoji of a penguin. Seth says it just looks cool. That is a subjective opinion, isn't it? Julius Ronquillo says, if the Bible is only for the Hebrews, then why is the New Testament written in Greek, which is a language of the Gentiles? Uh, okay, first of all, the Bible was written to Hebrew people. Jesus came to his own, who were Hebrews. But the language, the lingua franca of the day, was more Greek than it was Hebrew. And uh, it doesn't mean the Bible doesn't ha- the Bible the Bible doesn't have application to us. And I'm not saying it doesn't isn't a, one of the, the greatest gifts God has given uh, the world. Uh, it wasn't written to to Gentiles. It was written to first Hebrews, and then it was written in Greek to those who believed in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. So Craig Sherman says relative to the show what is subjective christianity we are not saved by intellect but by whatever love is absolutely correct there is another way why don't you use your knowledge of church history and the bible to come to the fullness of god's truth found in the church that jesus himself started then you can have your faith and reason too bless you in your journey i'm 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 guessing that he's talking about mormonism and that uh, there is another way. Why don't you use your knowledge of church history and the Bible to come to the fullness? And that's the thing that Mormonism teaches is that we have partial truth with Christianity. They have the fullness of the restored gospel to offer the world. That's their pitch to people. And so their uh, past prophets would say things like, um, yes, uh, the, the, uh, the Christians have great goodness and things. But we have more. We have more. We have a living prophet. We have living apostles. Come to us. We have more. We have a priesthood we can give you. We have more. The Christian church has lost all that in what they say was the, the, the falling away. So apostasy. Uh, so I don't think I'm going to accept your, your invitation, but thank you. It's okay. Um, Santa is an, now from Professor of Feather. Professor Feather. Santa is an antichrist archetype. <laughs> so we have one guy who's supporting Santa. Thank you, Ethan, for causing all of this. And now we have another guy who's saying Santa is the antichrist archetype. He's watching you all the time, keeping record of right and wrong. 
rewards good behavior, total antithetical to Christ's message. Uh, okay, first of all, I don't think that's, uh, anti, uh, that's an archetype of an antichrist because you could say God watches us all the time. I believe that. That he records right and wrong in terms of not a record, but he knows what we're doing relative to our actions. And he rewards good behavior, which is totally a part of the biblical message that you're rewarded with crowns uh, of righteousness and you are not given those crowns if you don't behave well. You know, so uh, I don't see the uh, Antichrist archetype in Santa. On body image, oh, we're not going to cover that later. Zelf on the Shelf show, as a Roman Catholic and a subscriber to the Zelf on the, Zelf, Zelf on the Shelf channel, I love this interview, but I can't wait to hear their thought in 20 years or so to the same questions. And I agree. I like Zelf on the Shelf. I like those two uh, kids. I think they're personable and they're funny, but they represent a real secular view of this life and this world and uh, pretty hardcore. Uh, we let all views come on the show and pretty hardcore. And I, uh, I think that in time, maybe those views will change. Should Christian use drugs? That's another show we'll cover later. LDS caller tries to defend the Book of Mormon. The callers are respectful with a good spirit. And then the so-called Christian Sean is full of hate and often sound like he's possessed of an evil spirit. <laughs> well, I probably was. Uh, you got to understand. For people who don't know this, when I was doing the live shows and having grown up in Mormonism and knowing all the rhetoric they use to defend themselves and give answers for things, that when you're listening to a call after call after call and they're bringing the same rhetoric, which isn't substantiated by fact, you have to, and you're on the call and you're trying to keep it, you're trying to keep it moving and you're trying to keep it interesting. You got to jump in and you've got to question things that are said. So if someone gives you a wheelbarrow full of information, I could just sat there and said, okay, thank you. That's beautiful put. Thank you. Thank you. Or you could stop them every time they make a mistake uh, that's fallacious. And so I decided I would stop people. They would say things, I know the church is true. Stop for just one second. I sound like I'm interrupting and I'm rude. You know the church, the church is true? Relative to its history, you know this? How do you know this? It sounds combative. It sounds like an evil spirit. But what you're doing is you're not letting, one, them overwhelm the show with their rhetoric. Two, you're calling them out on every statement they make. And, 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 and that's how it went. Now, there were times I was rude, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. There were times when I was impatient. Uh, I had some very low moments on that show. But I was just trying to be, take it as it came and do my very best with whatever was being said. And I apologize for those low moments. We had a person call who had a, actually had a physical or mental disability and started talking through the phone with that. Well, we had other callers previously that uh, were calling and pretending like they did. So I thought the guy who called who had one actually was pretending. So I started to mock him. Oh, really? Is that true? Because I thought he was one of the fake callers, and he wasn't. That's a low point. I mean, you'd be hung out to dry if somebody did that on TV today. Well, that's just how it was, and we did it the best we could. So I apologize to any and all I've insulted and uh, going on there. 
going on from there. Join us. Yep, the only Christians, the only thing Christians have waited for these last 2,000 years was Jesus. Not a restoration, not a new dispensation, or Gentile temples or new rules. The Reformation didn't claim, didn't lead to claims of prophecy, anointment, or authority. It led to only one. It led to none. Any change that is obviously unscriptural. I'm not sure on that one. I'm sorry. Uh, were any of the apostles Gentiles? Jesus' original uh, apostles and Ma- uh, Matthias and Paul? No, all Jews. Uh, did Jesus do miracles for any non-Jews? Um, I don't know. I don't. I think that's kind of a tough question because there was one time when he sent the 70 out to non-Jews and they did miracles in his name. So I'm, I know that's the case. As I read the New Testament, it's not clear on the Gentile issue. Bottom line, when Jesus was walked the earth, he had nothing to do with Gentiles. And he told his apostles, don't have anything to do with them. I've come to my own of the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he did not go out to the Gentiles at all. Uh, but he did send the 70 out. We know that to go to other nations and they did mighty miracles among them as a precursor to show that ultimately the other sheep that Jesus had, which were not of that fold, the Jews would receive the gospel and the good news. And that started when Peter gave Cornelius his house, um, uh, the gospel message, they spoke in tongues. And then we have Paul coming in and unfolding all of it to the Gentile nations. Um, please compare Mormonism in Utah to communism in Cuba. Both should be a utopia. People risking their lives to get in. What? Are you serious? People leave everything behind just to get out. That's from Byron of Calgary. And uh, Silver Dragon says, relative to religious manipulations, how are we doing on time? Really? All right. I didn't know. You're supposed to tell me, Seth. You're... First, you skip the prayer list today at church. Just skips it. I don't care about that. Now he doesn't tell me what time we're on. Uh, really quickly, let me skip through quickly so we can wrap this up. Um, and I don't think there's anything more. We got a lot from cat shows, which we're going to cover Uh, when we do our cat show next. So you guys tune in with us uh, next week. Just to let you know, uh, we have an interview we're going to show that I did with uh, Kwaku L of the Mormon Church and a number of his friends on their uh, podcast the other night. We'll show it here on Heart of the Matter, but it's also available on Kwaku L's uh, podcast show. And uh, in that, we'll show it and then we'll talk about the approach and why I did things the way I did rather than the old standard fare of fight, fight, fight. I love you. Tune in next week here on Heart of the Matter.